Now, as we finish up this week of Thanksgiving, I hope that it's abundantly clear to all of us that Christians should always have an attitude of gratitude, right? We are called to be a thankful people. Throughout the scripture, you see the Bible challenging us as God's people to be thankful. First Chronicles 16, 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. First Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We should be continually thankful because we have been blessed in innumerable ways. Our God is so good to us. How many ways that he has blessed us, not the least of which is what he has done for us through the work of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of Thanksgiving, the reason why for so many of us it's our favorite holiday, is that it causes us to stop and consider all that we have to be thankful for. Because in the busyness of life, it's very easy for us to overlook all the incredible blessings that God has given to us as his people. So I hope that over the past week, you've spent time thanking God for your family. I hope that you were able to celebrate your family this past week and not just be ready to get away from them. I hope that you spent time thanking God for your job, for a job, for homes, for, for food, for air conditioning or heating, depending on what hour it is in Texas, for a host of other things that we take for granted. I hope that you give thanks to God for the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus. And I want to add another thing to the list today, if I could. Another blessing from God that we should be thankful for that our text today draws our attention to 1 Samuel 20, and it's the gift of friendship. I want to challenge us to be thankful for friendships today. Because I think that's what 1 Samuel 20 calls us to do. As we continue our study in the life of David... We find that after David's victory over Goliath, things aren't super easy for him. His life gets a little bit dicey. The people begin celebrating immediately David's feet, and Saul becomes jealous. And not jealous like you got the good brownie from the plate, like the middle one that's still gooey in the middle, right? No, he's jealous like in a murderous way, a different level of jealousy. Let's look at one interaction between David and Saul in 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Here's the song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, Saul's already a little bit jealous, so this does not go over very well. He's very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, you know what that means, that side eye kind of thing. Always looking at this guy who was a threat. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. 
And he did this day by day. And here's how he raved. Here's how he walked around being angry in his house. He had a spear in his hand. When a jealous, mad king is walking around the house with a spear, you better watch your back. And verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'm going to pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand. He went out and came in before the people. David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw all the, the great success that he had, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah, they loved David, for he went out and he came in before them. So things have certainly gotten dangerous. From that day forward, there's this weird interplay between David and Saul. Sometimes Saul's okay with David, and sometimes he wants to pin him to a wall with a spear. It's a big emotional swing. Until one day, the jealousy in Saul is so consuming that it's no longer safe for David to be in his presence, as we'll see in our text today. What's interesting, though, about this very difficult season in the life of David is that in the midst of all this danger, God gives David a gift. He gives David a friend, an unlikely friend, the son of Saul, whose name was Jonathan. While Saul is consumed with jealousy because of David's victories, Jonathan has a very different reaction. Look at how Jonathan responds to David's victories in chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, David, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his belt. Jonathan recognized there was something very unique about this guy, David, that the Lord was uniquely with him. And Jonathan had already had his own victories against the Philistines. He had already displayed incredible faith in God. But there was something unique about what was happening with this guy, David. And instead of being threatened by him, Jonathan was drawn to him into a powerful, powerful friendship that ultimately God used to save David's life. And this brings us to 1 Samuel 20. Saul's anger has grown to the point where David believes he could no longer stay at court. He's talking to his BFF Jonathan about this. And Jonathan says to him, you're not in danger. There's no way my dad would do anything to, to threaten your life without telling me about it first. And then David counters in verse 3 and says to, to Jonathan, what if your dad is hiding his plans from you? Because he knows how close we are and he doesn't want to tell you he's trying to kill your best friend because he doesn't want to hurt you or he doesn't want you to inform me that he's coming after me. What if he is, after all, hiding his plans from you? And so together, the bonds of friendship, they devise a plan to find out once and for all if Saul is committed, seriously committed to killing David, or if he just had some bad goat. What is, what's up with Saul? Is he really going to try to murder David? Here's what they're going to do. 
David's going to hide in the fields. He's used to doing that because he's a shepherd. While everyone gathers with Saul for the new moon feast. And this happened every new moon. It's outlined in Numbers 28, 11 to 15 as a way for the people of God to give thanks for the crops. And David would be expected to be there as the king's son-in-law and as a commander in the army. And if Saul notices David's absence, his reaction to David's absence is going to be the indicator to whether or not David is saint. And so here's what David is supposed to, or Jonathan is supposed to say if Saul talks to him about David. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 20. David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of the clan. And if Saul's okay with that answer, then David is safe. But if he's unusually mad, even more mad than you know, walking around his house with a spear and throwing it against the wall kind of mad, if he's unusually mad, then David is not safe and he will not be able to return to court. And after that encounter... Jonathan's supposed to come to this field and communicate to David what he found out by shooting some arrows. And and how he communicates where the arrows are to his servant is how David will know whether or not it's safe. If he says to his servant, the arrows are to your side, that means, David, you can come back. If he says to the servant, the arrows are beyond you, then David is in danger and he should not return. Now let's see how the drama unfolds at the feast in verses 24 to 34 of 1 Samuel 20. Here's what the word of God says. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything on that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean, and that's why he hasn't come. But on the second day, as the feast continues, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul as they agreed upon. Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, let me just tell you guys, in the language of the Old Testament, that's even harsher than it sounds on this page. I mean, he is really, really mad. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? And to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Why? Why is this to the shame of Jonathan? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom, also my kingdom, it will not be established. Therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. It's in your interest that David dies. So why are you still protecting him? Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father. But why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. Man, he likes throwing the spears. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. It's now clear that Saul wants to remove the threat to his throne that exists in David. And then Jonathan does exactly what he promised. 
he goes and he shoots his arrows and he warns David, saying to the servants, the arrows are beyond you and David knows. And when the coast is clear and Jonathan sees he has not been followed by his father's servants, he sends his servant away so that he and David can have one final moment together, one final moment of earthly friendship. In verses 41 and 42, David rose from the the stone heap. They fell on his face to the ground, bowed three times. They kissed one another. They wept, David weeping the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. That's a very emotional scene. Because they know that the fellowship they've enjoyed is likely over. But the friendship has served God's purposes. God used the friendship to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Through this very unlikely friendship, God saves David's life. Some of you may be saying, Jared, why is this an unlikely friendship? Well, remember, Jonathan should not want to be friends with David. Because David threatens his ascension to the throne. He should see him as a threat, and so should David. Because the practice at this time, as we see in 1 Kings 15, 29, is when a new man steps onto a throne of a kingdom, what's the first thing that you do? You wipe out anybody else who has a claim to your throne. And yet these two men, who should be enemies, become the deepest of friends. God allows them to enjoy a deep, abiding friendship that leads to a covenant that leads to the preservation of their lives. Jonathan promises to David, I will help protect you through my position in Saul's court. And then David promises him, when I ascend to the throne, I'm going to protect your children. I'm going to protect your legacy. There will be no retribution upon your house while I am king. They covenant with one another because they love one another. And God uses the friendship of these men to accomplish his purposes. And as you read these texts from Samuel, 1 Samuel 18 to 20, you just can't help but see the Bible telling us that there's something unique and special about this friendship. It is a prototypical kind of friendship. The kind of friendship that you should desire to be a part of and the kind of friendship that you should desire to initiate as a friend. It's not just another relationship. It's a picture for us of what godly friendship should look like. Godly friendship that honors the Lord, that considers. that like every other relationship that God has given us, Friendship is meant to be a blessing to us, but also to teach us about how God wants to relate to us. So let's think about it. What makes this friendship so special? Why why would God inspire a portion of the Bible to be set aside to talk to us about the uniqueness of this friendship? I think there are three qualities, three traits that I see in this particular friendship that, that are meant to influence the way that we approach friendship. To, to see it as a blessing and to pursue it and enjoy it. Three, three traits that will help us be better friends as the people of God. So let's look at these three traits. What are the traits 
that make this friendship special that we should seek to find in our own friendships. The first one is this, genuine love. There is genuine love between these two men. There can be no doubt when you read the text that over and over again, the Bible is drawing your attention to the fact that these men love one another in a way that is not common. It's, it's more than just an acquaintance. It's more than just someone that you keep up with on Facebook. These men want to do life together. There's a, there's a bond, a unique bond that God has given them. It's a blessing. 1 Samuel 18.1, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. 20.17, these two men swear by their love for one another because they love each other as their own souls. Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Now, this is surprising language. You don't often hear uh, the Bible or anybody else talk about two men, two women even, loving each other in this kind of way. In fact, it may make some of us uncomfortable to think of two men having this kind of affection for one another. But remember the purpose. Remember, God designed us for relationship. God designed us to live in community. He himself exists in community. One God, three persons, and us, uh, human beings, designed in his image, are called to live in community. And God has blessed us with relationships, relationships like marriage, relationships like parenting relationships, and certainly friendships that are meant to teach us not only about God's provision and blessing and gifts that he's given to us as his people here, but the way that he wants us to relate to him. And so there's a design here. And the, the unique relationship, the unique friendship that God has called David and Jonathan to that is meant to teach them more about their God. There should be no issue in these two men loving one another deeply in a way that honors the Lord. Now, of course, the expression of their love in that relationship will be different than expressions in other relationships. But the only reason that this would be uncomfortable for us or misapplied by us is because of how sin has perverted what God has given to us as a gift. You should love friends deeply. You should, you should connect with friends. And not every friend, right? We're talking about a unique set of friends that God gives to us in our lives. You can't have this kind of intimacy with just everyone. Jesus himself, he had 12, but he had three right? So a unique friendship that teaches us about God's desires for us. We should, we should have a friend that we love as our own soul. This is not the first time, by the way, that the Bible uses this kind of language to refer to friendships. We see it also in Deuteronomy 13, 6. And it seems like the Bible is telling us that one of the great gifts of God that he's given to us are deep, abiding friendships. There are people who you meet in the course of life who you will identify with in different, unique, specific ways that are meant to be an encouragement to you, that are meant to be a reminder that you're not alone, it's meant to be a reminder to you that God cares about you living in community, not being isolated, not being depressed, not being lonely. To know someone deeply and to walk through life with them. David and Jonathan, they had a lot in common. They were both courageous young warriors. They both professed incredible faith in God. They both had faith-initiated victories over the Philistines, and they were both celebrated for their victory. And they were also in line to be king. 
because of their work, because of what they'd experienced, they had a view of life that not many other people could relate to. And God gave each other, gave them each other to be an encouragement, to continue to remain on the path that God had called them to. There was a special kind of relationship, a unique gift from God that they recognized in one another, and it turned into genuine love and affection. And that genuine love and affection then turned to unwavering loyalty. Second trait that I see in the text that made this friendship special. They, were, they loved one another deeply, and then they were unwaveringly loyal. Their, wo- their love for one another leads, to them, leads them to make a covenant with each other. A covenant that they, they base upon the covenant that God made with them. They say, in the same way that God has covenanted with us, we want a covenant with each other. And our, our covenanting with each other is meant to be a reflection of how God has covenanted with us. So we're going to be friends to each other. We're going to be faithful to each other. We're going to be loyal to each other in a way that testifies to the way that God has been faithful and loyal to us. How? Well, God's covenant was based on a, in a one-way direction, right? He had all the power, and yet even though there was a people who had no power and nothing to offer him, he covenants with them. He connects himself to them, to, to save them and to make their lives better, to give them blessing. And each of these two men are in unique positions of power. Jonathan is in a position of power right now. David will be in a position of power down the road. And they've promised each other when they are in a position of power, when they have a unique power that will be beneficial to the other, they will use it for their friend's good. Jonathan is the son of the king. He has unique access to the king. Unique access to the thoughts of the king. He is favored in the court of Saul. One day, David will be king. And each commits to the other that in their position of power, they will look to the interest of the other and not just to the interest of themselves. Jonathan will use his role as the son of the king to protect and defend David. And David will use his position as king to protect the sons and the daughters and the lines of Jonathan. More than anyone else, they will be loyal to each other. It reminds me of that proverb. Proverbs 18.24, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what a gift that is, to have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. They will have each other's back. They've promised themselves before God as a testament to the way that God loves Israel, they will be faithful to one another, even when it's costly. And this leads to the third trait. Not only love, not only loyalty, but sacrifice. Willful sacrifice. I want you to think for a moment about all that Jonathan gives up to be friends with David. I mean, Saul, Saul lays it out. As long, verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. It is in your interest to let me murder him. Send him to me. Jonathan, though, is willing to renounce his throne to give it to David in peace. Now, of course, God's already made this determination, but Jonathan willingly submits to it, and he puts himself in danger. He risks his life 
in front of the king. There's a very real spear that flew toward Jonathan's head, sacrificing his own family relationships to be friends with David. And then David. David willingly allows an earthly earthly threat to remain on earth to his reign as king because of his love and his promise to Jonathan. It would have been easier to wipe out the threat of Saul and his line, but David instead chooses to honor his commitment to Jonathan. And one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, 2 Samuel 9, we see David following up on that when he invites Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, to dine at his table for as long as he lives. True relationships are costly, right? Any God-honoring relationship is not simply based on what the other can do for you. And that's true in any relationship, not just friendship, right? If you think about marriage, it's only what the other person can give to you. Then you're in for a whole world of hurt. Relationships are, are designed to reduce selfishness, not promote selfishness. There's a mutuality involved in any relationship on purpose to remind you as a gift to you that everyone doesn't exist just for you. This world wasn't created for your glory, but for God's glory. And every now and then it's good for you to put aside what your preferences are. It's good for you to give up what you want for the good of someone else. It brings about perspective. Perspective. Of who this is all really about. David and Jonathan were willing to sacrifice greatly for the good of their friendship. And doesn't that sound like the kind of friend you want to be? Does it sound like the kind of friendship that you want to be involved in? One that's described by genuine love, unwavering loyalty, and willful sacrifice. No wonder. No wonder the Bible sets this friendship apart as an example to us of how we should pursue friendships. But it also does something else with this friendship. It points us to an even more unlikely friendship. As with every other part of David's story, the ultimate benefit to us in reading it is how it prepares us to understand the work of Jesus Christ. Because friends, if you want to talk about unlikely friendships, let's talk about being friends with Jesus. And yet, that's exactly what we are if we are in Christ. Listen to these words from John 15, verses 12 to 17. You ready to get some goosebumps? These are the words of Jesus. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, how has he loved us? Genuinely, with loyalty and sacrifice. He's calling us to do the same as his people. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends. What? You are my friends. Friends, if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so you will love one another. Jesus has called us his friends. And friends, this should be surprising to us, right? If you think the friendship of David and Jonathan was unlikely, and it definitely is unlikely, that the promised king who represents a threat to a line should not be the friend of the son whom he is going to replace on the throne. That friendship does not make sense. But in as much as we can understand that friendship, this one is beyond our comprehension. Think about what what God is saying here, what Christ is saying to us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Holy Son of God, has called sinners, enemies, his friends. Stunning. We were enemies of God, and yet God made a way for us to be in relationship with him through his Son, and not just random acquaintances, but friends. Deep, abiding friendship, relationship that we can have with God. And the friendship of Christ has led to our salvation. I hope that you in this room have had the opportunity to enjoy great friendships. I hope that you've had the ability to to walk closely with someone in this world. But let me just tell you something. There's not a friend you can find on the planet Earth who can save you who can alter your eternity to free you from the bondage that you are found in and sin and the future of death and separation from a holy and righteous God. There's only one friend that can do that. There's no greater friend than Jesus. Listen, there's been no greater display of genuine love than what we see in our friend Jesus Christ. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God has shown us genuine love in sending his son, Jesus, to us. Genuine love, right? You don't, you don't give your son. You don't give your life. You don't, sac- you don't leave the glory of heaven and come to earth if there's not something driving you to do that, and that's love. Love that will ultimately result in the glory of God. But certainly, love. And it's true what Jesus says there. There's no greater love than the the love shown when a, a friend lays down his life for his friends. But do you know that before the work of Christ, we were not friends of God. We were enemies of God. And yet, even In our place as enemies, God chose to show his love for us in Christ so that we could be his friends. What we could not be before, now we are. There's been no greater display of genuine love than what we see in Christ, the cross of Christ. There's been no greater example of unwavering loyalty. Jesus was in a unique position of power. He had unique access to his Father, and the Father hid nothing from him. See, Jonathan didn't know the plans of Saul. Jesus knew every plan of God. And he committed himself 
for the good of his friends to follow through with them. Loyalty. We had nothing to give. And yet even so, Jesus gave us himself. Think about this. The, the covenant that David and Jonathan made with one another sort of makes sense. David needed protection now, and Jonathan could give that protection. Jonathan needed protection later, and David could give that protection. And so it made sense for them to covenant with one another because they had something to offer the other. But, but think about this. You have nothing to offer Jesus. Nothing. And yet, he proved himself faithful and loyal to the plan of God to save you from your sin. So that we who had nothing could have everything. And finally, there's been no greater picture of willful sacrifice than Jesus. Jonathan was willing to give his life for David. He had a spear thrown at him after all. Jesus wasn't just willing to give his life, he did. He was hung not on a wall, but on a cross. So that we who are his enemies could be called friends. There is no greater friend than Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of friendship here and now. Every time you enter into a friendship, every time you engage in friendship, it should serve as a reminder to you of the greater friend that you have in Christ. Right? In marriage, the, the intimacy that Jordan and I have is a reminder of the kind of intimacy that God desires to have with me and the blessing that he's given. But now, when I walk in friendship, it's a reminder to me of another blessing that God has given me and having a friend in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to prayer. What a privilege it is to carry everything to our God in prayer. Friendship is a gift. To help us walk in community, deep, abiding community that God has designed us for. But it's also a gift and that it reminds us of the work of our greater friend, Jesus. A friend like no other. How can we respond to this, this challenge of friendship that we see on the text today? How can we respond to the gift of friendship that God has given us? Well, firstly, embrace the friendship of Christ. If you're not a friend of Jesus, you're an enemy of God. And you will spend an eternity separated from him in a place called hell. But you don't have to. Because God has made a way for those of us who are separated from God to be reconciled to him. And not at an arm's length. Hear me. You are just acquaintances with Jesus, when you enter into his provision, you are friends, your family, your sons and daughters of the Most High. Some of you in this room, you feel separated from God. You know you're separated from God and you don't know how you're going to get to him. You've been, you've been trying in your own activity, your own work, your own effort to get to him, and nothing you do seems to be enough. And that's because it will never be. But Jesus has done the work for you. Embrace the provision that God has made for you in Christ and become a friend of God. Just a minute. We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about who Jesus is and, and how you can take advantage of the friendship that he offers through the sacrifice that he made. For the rest of us,
who are in Christ. Let's take advantage of the gift that God has given to us in friendship. Let's make an effort to engage the gift of friendship that God has given to us. Now, two caveats here. Number one, you've got to choose wisely. Friendship is a gift, yes, but it can also be a curse. And we see that throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Right? Proverbs 22. Let me read this for you. Beginning in verse 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So again, what God meant for good, sin can take and pervert, and it can lead to evil. And you all know, as many Jonathans are out there, there's also a bunch of Saul's. You don't want to be friends with a Saul, because that will not promote the good that God designed to promote in you in friendship. It'll rather take it away. And so enjoy friendship, but friends, choose your friends wisely, and then give thanks. Give thanks for the friends that God has blessed you with. I was thinking about this sermon this week, and I was considering the whole course of my time in ministry, and, and the Lord just kind of brought something to my mind, that in every place I've served in the church, every place I've served the church, the Lord has brought forward a deep and abiding friendship to sustain me in ministry. It's incredible. At Florida Boulevard Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I met Travis Boyd, who's like a brother to me even today. Uh, we've, We've gone through a lot of life together. And honestly, I don't know that I would be in ministry today if not for him and the encouragement and the challenge that he provided for me in that season, a difficult, difficult season of life there. And then when I went to Champion Forest Baptist Church, Glenn Licato, dear friend of mine, who worked a full-time job and still served alongside me as we did young adult ministry and encouraged me and, and kept me... T- hey, listen, I know it's hard, but keep going. Just incredible, incredible work. I think about Blair Robinson even today at First Baptist Church of Irving, right? Every place I've served, the Lord has given me a deep friendship to encourage me. And what a gift of God that is. And we need to give thanks to the Lord for that. We need to thank them, obviously, but you also need to, to thank the Lord that that God has given you relationships to sustain you and help you walk through deep and difficult, dark seasons, to share and do life with, to help you remain faithful to what God has called you to. It's easy to take friendships for granted until you leave them, right? And you see what happens there at the end of our chapter today. You know, not a lot of kissing, but certainly weeping, hugging, because when that provision is removed, you feel the need for it. And, of course, God's been faithful to raise up another, but do you give thanks for the friendships that that God has brought into your life to sustain you? Do you pray for it? Do you seek it out actively? Sure, I don't have any friends. Okay, listen, there's a room full of people right here that God has provided for you. Get to know some people. Have them over to your house. Invest, seek out the kind of friendships that God has provided for you. And then, and taking advantage of them, 
Be the kind of friend that we see in Jesus. Strive to be a friend like Christ. Strive to be in a, a friendship that's a testimony to the way that God has loved us. As David and Jonathan committed themselves to. Love your friends in surprising ways. Genuinely love your friends. Listen, friendship is not about flattery. Don't, don't just associate with people who only tell you what you want to hear all the time. That's not what love is. That's deception. Love requires truth-telling. Love requires living in reality. Because if not, you're always going to have that question in the back of their mind. Do they really just love me for who I am? Or do they love me because of what they think I can give them? If times got hard, would they still be there? Would they stick as close as a brother? Be a kind of friend who loves, even when it's difficult. Be the kind of friend who wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go help a brother or a sister who's struggling in their marriage. Be the kind of friend who will go and help you move, pack boxes, pick things up. Be the kind of friend who in moments of discouragement has scripture, the truth of God's word, on your tongue, ready to give as an encouragement. Love. Surprising ways. Be loyal to your friends as a testament to Christ. Covenant with each other. Hey, listen, I want this friendship to be the kind of friendship that will paint a picture for how God has befriended us. Let's, let's allow our friendship to be a, a tool of evangelism in the same way that, that Jordan and I desire our marriage to be a picture of God's love for the church, Christ's love for the church, and how he gave himself for her. Shouldn't we pursue the same thing in our friendships? If every relationship is meant to, to teach us about God and be used by God for his purposes, shouldn't we see friendships in the same way? And finally, sacrifice for the good of your friends. On occasion, it's important for your, your friend to know, just like your spouse needs to know, that this is not all about you and that you're willing to give up what you desire, what your preference is, because of your relationship to them. Let our friendships be a picture of the gospel for the glory of God. Let's try to be the kind of friends that people want. And let's be in friendships that God can use for his glory. Amen? Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time praying before the Lord. Asking the Spirit to help you know how to respond. Are you a friend of Jesus? If you're not, let today be the day. If you are in Christ, do you look like Jesus in your friendships? Are you seeking relationships, friendships that honor and glorify Jesus and teach people about the friend that we have in him? Or are you going after the wrong kind of friendships? Don't honor the Lord and don't help the Lord accomplish his purposes in you. And may all of us give thanks today for the friendship of Christ. 
that has secured our salvation. Father, we rejoice in the gift of friendship. We rejoice mostly in the greater gift of friendship with Jesus. May we celebrate that today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You stand in response to the Lord leads.